Hello and welcome to another episode of Voice of Crypto. This is a podcast where we chat with people in Web three, crypto, metaverse, NFT, and everything in between. And today I have a very special guest, Marcus, with me. And why is he special? We will talk once we start the the conversation here. So, Marcus, welcome on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great, great. So, Marcus, uh, as as when I talk to all of all my guests, the first question which I ask is, what was that accident which brought you towards Web three? Because I'm sure none of us dreamt as a kid that we will get into Web three or crypto or NFT because probably it was not even there. So, do you remember that incident, that accident which which got you into Web three and what you used to do before Web three? What what has been your journey till now? Well, I think my journey was a little bit longer than maybe other people, and I think it sort of started in in January 2013, when a colleague uh, next to me started to buy Bitcoin on uh, on Mount Gox, and uh, you know I tried as well, but it, it took like a week to get the settlement, and it was really like a cumber you know cumbersome operation, and didn't really pursue it then. And then in 2015, I started uh, my own hedge fund, and one of my my analysts. He was like so into crypto, and he tried to set up like some business within within our fund. And I said, okay, if you get it going, um, you know we can we can, we can run it as a, like a separate strategy. But then you know he left and pursued a different uh, career, just full full crypto in 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 Russia and Moscow actually. But he couldn't actually get it going. That was kind of interesting. Uh, you know, it's, it's all these interesting uh, you know facets and everything. Right. And then yeah. when I um, you know then I worked for like an institutional bank, and I. Traded crypto as part of my multi-asset portfolio in 2019, and I would say this is really when I took like 10% of the capital that uh, was entrusted to me from an institution really uh, in, into crypto, and I, you know, traded it uh, as part of the macro strategy. But then it was really only um, only really in 2021 when I moved as a CIO for uh, for a crypto conglomerate and traded really crypto there, oversaw the crypto funds, and you know now I'm at a company called. Matrix port that is you know quite well known in, in the crypto space because it was founded by you know one of the legendary you know mining people in in China really Bitcoin mining people and I'm head of research there so it was like you know many steps and I think it's just like a you know a story itself but I think as many people you know you dabble a little bit in you know you hear you do a little bit on the side but really jumping full time into it it took a little bit a uh, little bit of time. So I think if if you started in 2013, then you are one of the OGs of of crypto. I think that's that's what we can call you. Well, I mean, you know, I wouldn't call myself OG because you know it was just like very very small and it was really like minor and it was just like a little bit on the side. I mean, you know, a few things I discovered by you know, for example, writing this book really that my boss he, you know, he invested like a thousand Bitcoin and he made like 500x return in. 2013. So there, you know, so I wouldn't really compare myself to those kind of people. But, uh. <laughs> awesome. So Marcus, if, if you have to explain uh, to, to, let's say, an eight-year-old kid, what do you do for a living currently in very simple words, maybe in just 25 words, explain that. How, how will you explain what you do currently? Well, I, I'm trying to predict where basically digital asset prices go. I think that's kind of like the, the, the quickest uh, analysis. And I think it's with, with any... I guess with, with any asset, with anything that trades, right? You were trying to predict really the prices and that's really what you do. It doesn't matter if it's digital assets or stocks or commodities or carpets or whatever it is. You're just trying to be ahead of the curve and just trying to predict how people make decisions and when. 
right right so marcus what i understand is is that you come from a traditional finance background and then uh, started learning about digital assets crypto and then you started maybe convincing your companies to start investing small in in yeah. crypto uh, so since you started in 2013 and now it's 2020 it has been a 10 year journey uh, what are some of of the changes which you have seen in mindset of uh, and i'm asking specifically because we have seen a, a huge bull run from retail but from institutions what are what are certain things which you see which have changed or which still needs to be changed in 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 a span of 10 years yeah so basically i mean 2013 there wasn't really you know much happening i think you can you can argue compared to now um ecosystem was like very small and it was just a little bit like on the side really it wasn't really you know taking much of my time and you just looked at it and you know you just you know looked at it basically that's that's all you really you you could do it was really then when there was some you know some bitcoin uh you know protocol upgrades and changes over time and of course when more and more stuff was was developed and um you know when ethereum came online and everything but but i think before it was more kind of for technology enthusiasts and i think it was also i think it was probably like mark andreessen who came also out with an article and maybe even in 2013 it was you know he was quite you know optimistic about it but it really you know it really didn't catch catch a fire back then uh, and i think for institution the big difference i mean there i think there are two really major events that happened is number one of course that the market cap has been you know become quite large and that's when institutions said like hey why don't we allocate some capital because you know suddenly this trades like a you know a trillion dollars or two or three where we at the peak so it becomes suddenly like you know meaningful and of course there was also like more demand from really the high net worth individuals the family offices you know they have like a little bit longer time horizons and you know and the imagination is always oh, if we just put in like 1% of our capital in it it maybe becomes 10% over time because it has such a strong growth and, and adoption role but i think the other aspect was also of course uh, the usage of stable coins where suddenly you could do a lot of um you know arbitrage between exchanges so you could move the money around and this is something that again my my analyst in 2015 tried Uh, but it couldn't get it working because stablecoins wasn't really that used so you needed to move capital you know you needed to move your btc from one exchange to another and trade it around and the liquidity wasn't really there but this is of course changed and of course now you know now a, a low day is really like 30 billion dollars of uh, trading volume and this is how much the you know the, the the stock exchanges of you know Japan and Korea trade combined but on a good day it can easily trade more than the US stock market so that's why i think institutions are starting to to look at it or have started to look at it you know it has come down now a little bit of course but i think people have still built the capabilities and are still quite optimistic about it they're just still in the waiting game right now and and marcus i mean we we hear this a lot of time that bitcoin crypto was supposed to be a decentralized currency and you know this is how it is supposed to be run uh, however what we have seen and when what what we hear is that once institutions come it becomes centralized then then the whole system changes so what are your your views on this since you understand this whole game better than all of us what are your views on this well you know what what normally happens is really that the volatility goes down because you suddenly have people that are that are not just like holding for the long term rather they're managing the portfolio and this means of course they're trying to sell upside calls i mean you know the miners are for example doing this the miners that don't that are not uh, you know in a hurry to sell inventory inventory meaning the bitcoin itself that they mine they would sell some upside calls and this is when the volatility starts to 
to get compressed over time. And I think we're really seeing this because I think over the last five years, Bitcoin 30 day volatility has been around like uh, 66, 66%. And we are now just at the uh, 32%. So we're dropping off sharply. And I think one reason is, of course, that miners have to manage the cycle a lot better. They have to manage the inventory a lot more careful. And of course, some of the institutions that have entered the, the space, they say, oh, you know what? We can make like 20% per year just selling upside calls. And if Bitcoin prices rally 30, 40% from here, yes, we lose the exposure, but we still make the money on you know, selling the upside vote. And I think this is where we're starting to, to actually to see the, the volatility being kept. And this used to be actually, you know, as I say, a feature, not the bug of, of the crypto market, that volatility is, is so strong. And we don't really see this anymore. And this is, I think, because we're starting to see more institutional players being active. And I think what has also changed a little bit over the last, especially over the last 12 to 18 months, um, is really that the some of the hedge funds that have entered crypto are actually more arbitrage hedge funds. So they're, they're not trying to make, you know, 5x or even 2x. They're really trying to make, you know, 10, 20% uh, after their cost, after their funding, and really just trying to arbitrage the market. And I think this is really a different investor type. But of course, this investor type was deep pockets and with, with larger capital base. And of course, what they're trying to do is really just pocketing the spread. And the result will be that volatility is coming in lower. And I think this is what we're seeing now. So this this will eventually, I'm, I'm assuming this will eventually calm down the markets and things will become more stable, more organized. As compared to what we have seen in past, yeah, I think I think that's what we're seeing, and I think that's that's really kind of the the, the maturity of the market. And and when you say institutions are are investing in in crypto, so is it only restricted to Bitcoin and Ethereum, or uh, I'm, I'm obviously I'm not assuming that institutions would be up would be taking Pepe Coin or Shiba Inu, but are they also investing? Are they also open in investing in in altcoins or is it only Bitcoin and Ethereum as of now? Well, of course, Bitcoin and Ethereum are both listed and accessible to the, you know, to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, to so the CME, where institutions can easily buy, uh, you know, futures. And the futures, of course, is derivative of, of the physical Bitcoin and Ethereum themselves. So they can easily buy those. But I think there have been also a lot more tracking and index funds in the market that look at the top 10, top five. And of course, they have their Solanas in there and, and some other, you know, other altcoins, really. Um, and I think there has been done a lot of work over the last kind of 12, 18 months also. Again, it has, of course, slowed down now because, you know, in the bear market, it's very tough to convince uh, those investors to allocate more capital. But I think people have been doing their research and really people... Have, have done their homework, you know, where to invest and where to position themselves. So, so I think there is capital also waiting for, you know, for the number two, number three, number four, number five uh, tokens, because people kind of assume that the upside for Bitcoin might be a little bit capped in terms of, you know, can you double your money maybe, but can you make three or four times uh, your capital is a little bit, uh, you know, questionable. And I think when you look, for example, how I think Solana, of course, had a, you know, a massive move from, you know, from above 200 to really just, you know, let's say $20. So can Solana, you know, double or triple? It could, right? I mean, you know, there have been some outages and some problems um, and some network uh, issues, but in effect, I mean, it can also solve solve a problem. And I think we're going actually to, to a way where, um, you know, similar to traditional finance, where you basically have, uh, have five major currencies, you don't have just one, 
Yes, a lot of settled in the US dollars, but of course you have the Japanese yen, you have the euro, you have the British pound, uh, and it's still going a lot of volumes with those. And I think it's very similar with, with cryptocurrencies where, where you don't have just like one or two. I mean, there are some use cases for, for various ones. And I think, uh, you know, having like a diversified portfolio of like five different ones, you know, definitely makes sense. And then Marcus, now, now coming to the point, so Marcus, why I said Marcus is is a very special guest because Marcus has recently launched a book uh, which which takes care of all which he has put all his heart and soul in the last 10 years of what he has learned. So mm -hmm. Marcus, tell us something about the book. How does the inspiration came when you started writing it and what all is, is in the book? Yeah, I mean, thanks for asking. I mean, it's, you know, the inspiration came came through, you know, various people that have written books that are, you know, in the market that have, you know, been telling me some of the history. And it was just kind of like a, initially like an approach for me to really piece the pieces together. You know, I mean, when did Binance became big? You know, what was the, what was really the trigger? You know, when when uh, stablecoin really started to be to be used, and a lot of the stuff just really happened over the last kind of like two three years. So you don't need to be there on day one. And I think the market has really evolved. And what this book actually turned out, and then there was just really no agenda initially. It was just really trying to piece the pieces together. Um, and I think it has, some, has come out something like, like a history book. Uh, you know, if you'd want to learn about World War II, you don't need to understand how, you know, the nuclear bomb really works. And, uh, and I think it's very similar a little bit with, with crypto. You don't need to understand how, you know, how Solidity works, how the programming languages work. But I think you still want to know, you know, what were the battles of World War II? You know, of course, you know, why did this happen? How did, you know, the sentiment change? And I think with, with this book, it's really, it looks at, kind of the last 12 years and it analyzes the four crypto bull markets. So we had like one in 2011, 13, uh, 17 and 21. What were the drivers? What were the players? Uh, you know, looking at their backgrounds. And it's really quite interesting and, and remarkable that, you know, how everything actually is very connected. I mean, the fact is, as I was just saying that, you know, Binance became like, you know, sort of big overnight because it was just one event. And I think with, with a lot of other things were also quite inspirational when, you know, I mean, one, one of my favorite examples is that one of the, you know, leading exchanges was actually, you know, the, the, I guess the, the blueprint was used by somebody who was just 17 years old and built an exchange, you know, programmed it at home really within like, within like a week. And, you know, some of the source code was leaked and this source code was, was used by another exchange. And then this other exchange became actually quite big because of this. I mean, there's really like, you know, really interesting stories that, uh, you know, that I was able to kind of piece together. But, but of course, I try to stay rather neutral and have like an, you know, observatory uh, viewpoint. And, uh, you know, so far the feedback has been, you know, really strong. And, you know, I'm of course quite happy because I just got really good feedback just before this, you know, before this, this call or this podcast. And uh, yeah, so I'm really, you know, pleased about it. So, so when, when did you started writing about this book and when was the initial idea uh, started that you should write a book about it? So the, actually, the initial idea was almost, you know, exactly a year ago at the FTX conference in the Bahamas. And it's quite, uh, it's, it's quite interesting because there was, of course, a rumor that Michael Lewis would be writing a book about, about Sam Bankman-Fried. And, um, and I was just thinking, you know, if you just write a book about like one person, maybe that's a little bit, you know, too boring or too niche for the crypto market because there's so much more. And it happened that there was this panel where my when my ex-boss was sitting with Suzu, Suzu, of course, from Three Hours, and he was sharing the panel, uh, and I was saying with you know with my with my ex-boss, 
and my current boss. So basically, you know, all these three were on the on on the um, on the on the panel there, and I was just thinking, you know, these guys are like, you know, you know, very well connected and you know, very well known in the industry and you know, leading figures. I mean, there's there's more to tell, right? There's more to tell, and of course, I thought it's more interesting to write a book from, a, let's say, a market practitioner, somebody who has been trading in the industry and and knows a little bit like uh you know a little bit you know inside information you can you know you might call it right a little you know deeper uh you know certain things instead of just like a journalist who just puts the pieces together and that's what i was trying to do and uh, and again there were some some other other interesting pieces which is uh yeah anyways but uh yeah that was the main that was the main trigger oh, and it took you almost one year to finish this book and get get it published so it has been a, a humongous task to to finish and so many stories and as as they say that one year in crypto is like five years in in a web two environment so must have been a very very tedious job for for you to do that well i mean you know i put notes together just for myself and because i write for example research and inform you know some of our institutional clients and and investors mm-hmm. um but of course it was like really you know really you know f- was really uh, focused on when the the terra luna implosion happened and of course on the other events as well uh, but i really started writing this book only in november and the, and the book really covers really all the events up to march april this year so the whole choke point is in it and whatever has been revealed is is all in it and you know the lawsuits and and everything so uh, so it's really up to date and yes i mean i'm always like quite amazed when i go through it and reread certain uh, passages you know how how much really has happened within just like a year and and again you know i see myself still you know in uh, you know in, in the crowd basically of the ftx conference and almost like everybody was there you know kevin o'leary was of course cheering <laughs> for sam bankman fried of course he has become very quiet now since it was revealed that he got like 15 million dollars in you know marketing or promoting expenses and uh, but it's just it just i mean it seems to be just like a year ago and i think uh, the world has changed so much and uh, and it's just incredible yeah i mean it's definitely what makes crypto really exciting and i think a year from now you know things might be even even then even a little bit more different right right so i mean um, uh, marcus you have seen this whole journey of crypto and you have seen multiple bull bull runs as well uh, what do you think i mean i rather than i would say what do you think is which countries or which geographical areas or which technologies do you think when the next bull market will start obviously it's just a assumption but from your understanding what what do you think about it yes yeah, so the one of the the key aspects actually i learned from from this book because you know everybody focuses so much more on you know on protocol you know pepsis pepsis you know uh, mm-hmm. you know dino you know dino is not hot and all these things but there is actually a bigger overall over driving trend in in everything in crypto as well so crypto is also really driven a lot by by top down and some people try to explain the wave and the and the bull markets you know based on a pattern of like somehow 3 years somehow 4 years somehow it's related to the bitcoin mining mm-hmm. uh but maybe this 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 could be all like you know wrongly assumed uh because one thing i discovered is actually in the, in the right about this in this book that is very often also driven with like some policy decisions so actually the governments you know really drive some of those policy cycles so one of the strongest 
bull market that we had in crypto actually was the strongest in 2013. It was initially driven by some enforcement actions in the US in, you know, in March 2013 that really drove a lot of the innovation outside of the US. But at the same time, it was really China that really opened up to crypto and really was uh, you know, praising it through a CCTV documentary. So it's like a state-run you know, TV channel. They had a 30-minute documentary really praising Bitcoin as the new money. And of course, when you tell Chinese people, here's the new money, um, you know, with money that they cannot, they can, that they could potentially br bring overseas. You know, a lot of money went into crypto then, and and suddenly China crypto trading accounted for you know 70, 80 percent of all the crypto trading in the world. And on top of this, you know, Baidu, which is of course the, the sort of the Google of China, you know, mm -hmm. came out and was accepting Bitcoin for some payment services, and then really the Bitcoin price really you know ramped up a lot. So it's a lot of those those moments where. There are some top-down policy decisions that are driving it and not necessarily when somebody develops uh, you know a new programming language or you know comes out with a new source code or a new you know a new DeFi project it's really these these, these bigger movements and i think this goes back to um to your question that um you know in an environment like right now where some jurisdictions seem to be more favorable some less favorable it doesn't really take much for, for a tipping point in crypto where some of the innovation moves all to one place and really, you know, unfolds there. And I think this can really well happen. I mean, of course, we know that the Middle East, especially Abu Dhabi, is very positive on crypto. And they have, you know, they have uh, said they're going to, you know, they're going to put aside like two billion US dollars to support the ecosystem. I mean, if they really play their cards well and be really aggressive and forceful in this, I think they can attract a lot of talent, even, of course, you know, Abu Dhabi is a relatively small city with just like 1.5 million, you know, people, um, you know, compared to London, you know, 7, 8 million compared, of course, to New York, Tokyo uh, and, and other large, uh, other large cities. But I think if they play their cards well, they can attract a lot of talent and it can actually make a difference because there are around 420 million people in the world that have cryptocurrency holdings. So it's not going to go away. I mean, this is for me the main conclusion. It doesn't matter if you're bullish or bearish; it will just not go away. It will be just like water, where it goes just for the least, for the least resistance. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is very similar. So again, I think it is really the jurisdiction that provides now the least resistance and offers the right infrastructure and environment. I think that can attract a lot of uh, talent. And who knows where we are in five years? Right, right. And and Marcus, do you, I mean you you said that. Baidu and the documentary. So I think it's it's also a lot of time that 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 the narrative which the media pushes. For example, you are also you've also written a book. You're also talking to a lot of audiences. It it puts you also a lot of responsibility because your actions can actually trigger a lot of small small things and people do get you know affected by this. So how how have you taken care of this in your book? And you and and end of the day, we all are human beings. So we also have certain biases. But when you are writing a book, there are a lot of things which you also have to keep in mind. Talk only about facts. So how have you kept that that in mind while writing this book? Yeah, very interesting because I again I didn't have a bias or any agenda. I don't, you know, the, the plan was not to write a book. Bitcoin is inevitable. That was not the plan. The plan mm -hmm. was to put it to put the pieces all together. The mm -hmm. plan was to really provide in one book the complete or as far as possible the complete history how crypto has actually evolved, moved through the cycles, what were the drivers, what were the various bull markets, who were the players, 
you know, who started, the, you know, who was the key player in 2013, you know, 15, how this has all evolved. And, you know, of course you can piece it all together, but I think this book really does it all for you. And actually I'm using 631 references. So it's really a highly researched book. It's, and it's not about, again, it's not about my opinion. It's not what I think. It's really these events. And of course there can be some dispute about certain events because some people remember them like differently. Uh, but, but I'm really going back to the, the comparison of it's sort of like if you want to learn about, you know, World War II, you can pick up, you know, a thousand history books. But if you want to learn about, you know, the history really of, of the crypto markets, there's not one book that, that captures everything. And I try to capture everything uh, as much as possible. Of course, at one point you have to stop because there's just like so much happening. But if you spend one weekend reading this book, I'm very sure you know a lot more. And, and I had, you know, quite senior people also reviewing the book before I published, right? I had... You know, the CEO of Wintermood, he read it, he read the whole book. Um, and thanks to him, he also read like an, you know, sort of like an unedited version because it wasn't really edited yet. You know, it was all like moving in parallel. It was all very quickly. Um, and a lot of other people, you know, or several other people read it as well. So I really took like their feedback. And, and of course, the, the feedback has been, well, it's a neutral. It's, uh, you know, it's for the reader to come up with their own opinion about it. But I provide you all the facts. So this is why if you're a regulator, you read the book. Well, you might take, uh, you know, a certain opinion out of it because you put your own opinion. But it's really the fact. And I think the fact is for you to decide. And I wanted to give everybody the opportunity because it's also like a responsibility, right? There's, there's no need to push somebody into, you know, any token that, you know, that might go down a lot. But I think I want to give you the tools and to see really the big cycles and to watch out for those events. Because right now people kind of hear a little bit, yeah, U.S. is negative. But what does it really mean? You know, what does it really impact? And I think we can go back in, you know, in the history of, of the cryptocurrency markets. If and when government has been negative or positive, it might have like a huge impact for the region, for the city, for the area and for the development of the ecosystem. So I think, Marcus, you, you have created a new term and a new position called as crypto historian. If, if you are the first one to release <laughs> this. And hopefully in, in future, we'll see a lot of crypto historians as well talking about the whole history of crypto. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm, it's interesting that you say this because I also thought about it. And, you know, crypto historian sounds like so boring, right? It's just like, it's almost like the opposite of crypto, you know, but, but I think it's actually important to know. And there has been, you know, a lot of appreciation. And again, you know, just talking again about, you know, Evgeny from Winterwood. I mean, he, he said, well, you know, because he started trading really in 2017, but he had like no idea what happened before. So he really appreciated to just get like a, you know, up to speed, you know, what happened before. And I think that's kind of what we, what we wanted to give to people that, you know, if you start out now, you just read it and you're up to speed or there's some, you know, some, some blanks you want to, you know, fill. I mean, this just really helps you. And uh, yeah, but I also think, you know, crypto historian is maybe not, not bad, but it's interesting you just say this. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, Marcus. And Marcus, you 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 spoke about uh, that a lot of time golden starts because of the policies of, of countries. And now in last few months, we have been seeing a lot of narrative from US coming upon SEC being very uh, tough on crypto. So do, I mean, obviously, if it's, I will not hold you for this, but, but are you seeing certain similar kind of patterns which you saw in 2013, your predictions, what do you feel? will happen after this this whole SEC crackdown? Yeah, again, I think in 2013, we had some uh, enforcement in the US where it just made made it kind of quite expensive uh, for, for um, 
crypto payment companies, crypto exchanges to operate there. And this is why we have actually not seen many uh, US-based crypto firms um, really leading leading the pack, right? It's really, um, you know, it's really only like two, three exchanges that we have seen over the years, but there is not really, uh, you know, it's, it's not like a handful. Um, so it's really, I think what happened is then, you know, the money moved outside and it was really scaled in Asia. And Asia, of course, has around 260 million crypto users versus 50 million in the US. That's kind of some, some estimates. Um, of course, India is like the largest with estimated like 100 million crypto, crypto users. Uh, but of course, we need to keep in mind that, that the capital in the US is a lot larger. So, you know, the 50 million might be, you know, it's definitely more firepower. But, but the comparison of 2013, where we suddenly saw a lot of those innovation move to Asia and really being able to, to be scaled in Asia. And I think this is really key because it opened the level playing field where, for example, China was very uh, constructive about it. Initially, of course, they changed their mind within a year as well. But then in Hong Kong, the, the Hong Kong Central Bank, the HKMA there, they were very open uh, about it. And of course, then a lot of those Chinese crypto firms moved to Hong Kong. Uh, other firms were, were set up there. For example, BitMEX was set up there then. You know, Bitfinex, you know, they were, of course, huge exchanges. And it was because Hong Kong was was really more, you know, call it libertarian. And I think it's really these policy moves that it's easy to overlook, right? It's, it's maybe not necessarily the individual, uh, let's say, in, in the case of Bitmax, you know, Arthur Hayes, you know, set it, set it up and build it. And, you know, of course, he did like an incredible job with, with you know, building the exchange. But it was really you know, the playground that was being offered by the regulator or by by the monetary authority in, in Hong Kong that really made the difference. And I think we need to really look out for those things because that's where we can uh, determine, you know, who might be the next winners from, from which area. And again, it's, I think it's, it's very overlooked because people just suddenly, you know, don't really look at it. They think crypto is not really about those top-down policy decisions. But, but I think it seems to be it seems to be the case. This is why we should really keep a close eye on this. So, so Marcus, now if, if US is out, China is out. Uh, obviously, we know Dubai, Abu Dhabi have been pushing a lot for for a good crypto case. According to you, which are the top five countries which are crypto friendly? Which which where are you saying a lot of people are investing in from where the next things can come can come up from? Which are you? Which other country very very bullish on for, for crypto adoption? Yeah, I think the a little bit my my secret country that could do really well. It might actually be okay. So of course we had some little you know <clears throat> hiccups calling it like gambling the other day, uh, but nevertheless, I mean you know London has still the, you know the large financial infrastructure, mm. so I wouldn't rule this out. And I think there has been uh, some uh, some exercise made to make it really uh, you know one of the leading uh, centers so i wouldn't rule this one out so this will be my my secret pick mm. understood understood great marcus so and and uh, uh, so as as we are about to finish our, our podcast where users can buy a book where is it available uh, and how can they get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you yeah thanks for asking i mean the book is of course available on, on amazon uh, in print version, so of course we released actually all three versions. So we released the, the Kindle version, uh, the paperback, and the hardcover version. It's also available in, in some bookstores. Um, it's available on on some on other online platforms. I mean, I publish 
a lot on, on LinkedIn. Uh, so people can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I also uh, publish some on, uh, on, on Twitter. Uh, DeFi on Target is a Twitter handle. But the best way would be just to follow on, on LinkedIn because it published there uh, every day. But of course, we also have uh, for institutional investors, we have our research product uh, that we send out uh, regularly. But again, there's, a, there's always some summary and insights and nuggets uh, always published on, on LinkedIn as well. Great, Marcus. Thank you for your time. And uh, those who are, I will put the link of, of the book as well in the comment section. You guys can go and I'll again call Marcus as the crypto historian. Uh, as, as as somebody who which is a which is the first historic book which is written so prepare for for the next season read history and because as they say history repeats itself so you will know here's the book yeah <laughs> so you can read this book and uh, you know learn a lot from Marcus experience of almost a decade and then get to know what is crypto because this is just the starting we are just starting this is a huge road to go ahead from here.